So uh, don't forget, if you're a first-time visitor here today, if you would fill out a visitor for, form and card, we'd love to have a record of your visit. In uh, You just put that in the offering box. So we do not pass an offering plate here, but um, in the box there's, a, there's some place you can put it, and then uh, another place in the lobby if you missed that one. Hey, we, uh, I did have an, another announcement, and that is uh, I, you know where our church property is. There's a home right across the street, two-story home, and there's a fellow who lives there, and um, uh, Tim Moore is, uh, uh, is uh, somebody who has been a great neighbor to us, and he had a great idea to go work with the mayor's office and do something. And he said, hey, would you, um, uh, you want to come to this meeting at the mayor's office and, and talk about this idea? And he got the idea from looking at our ladies' brunch, pictures of our ladies' brunch. If, if you're new here, we have, in the spring, we run this long table. 100, we had 114 settings for this place, right? And the men served. He, it was just a continuous, long, endless table. And, you know, uh, he's like, I'd love to do something with the city of Tampa. And so uh, I said, well, what's your idea? He said, well, I'm going to meet with the mayor and see if, you know, what first responders are working that day, and if we can, on, on Thanksgiving Day, I'm sorry, on Thanksgiving Day, and just throw them some kind of a Thanksgiving appreciation meal um, a, a week or two before somewhere downtown, a long line like that. <clears throat> and he said, would your church serve? Because you know what you're doing. I got the idea. I was like, well, yeah, are you kidding? So he said, well, uh, we met with the mayor. She loved it. She went to the chief and uh, um, the fire department, chief of the police department. And so these things, don't share these things. This is just us to know. And so November 10th, um, on, that's a Sunday night, 7 p.m., uh, the, there are multiple restaurants who are catering it. Some of our folks in here who have a table and chair rental place are donating the, 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 the tables. And we are going to serve, and I'll talk about how we dress and that kind of thing. You want to sign up. Um, and uh, all ages involved, and we'll be out there serving the firefighters and the policemen uh, who will be basically at shift change, I think. And, you know, some of you guys, I know the pinners and the chameleons and all with, you, with your fire experience, you'll appreciate this. Uh, the, there will be two or three people serving with us that you won't know. At a certain point, it's going to be one hour, at around 7.45, those individuals were lives were were saved by police or firefighters, and they're going to say a word of thanks. So the ones whose lives are actually saved by some of these guys, and they're just going to give them a thank you. And so anyway, it's really neat. November 10th, we'll have some more information on it next week, and that means uh, it's, it's us uh, that'll be out there. I thought of all churches, of all Rotarian groups or whatever, Kiwanis clubs I could have gone to, <laughs> we, Creekside, get to do this. So anyway, I'm really excited about it, and it's November 10th, and so hang on and, uh, for that. Um, Okay, so there's, <clears throat> there's quite a bit here. If you're new and you're walking in here, understand that uh, we go verse by verse by verse. And um, we don't hunker down on every verse, but we're not going to rush things either. There, uh, there is a... I love this kind of stuff because we're in history, in a history section. We've been, we started 1 Samuel in January of this year. We only have a handful of chapters left. So we're talking... Uh, we're almost over. It's taken us a year practically. And 
Uh, and there's been a lot. When I think the last Sunday, when we get done, we need to see it had a review. And I think you're going to be blown away at how much, like, wow, that, that seems like 10 years ago we talked about somebody having a baby. And, and, uh, and so we're, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at the, the stories of several lives that I want you to picture in your mind. I want you to get these, these names down, because if you don't get these names down right now, we're going to be in trouble. All right? So, you with me? Okay. First, we're going into 2 Samuel. There are, there's David, King David. If you've never been here before, and you're going, you know, what's going on? Here it is. King David went through a lot to become a king. A bunch. He has forfeited so much personal right to be, he's been pursued, he's been chased, he's been, he had to hide in caves. Uh, he was the natural anointed king over Israel, and he has been on the run. He is now king of Israel. Israel has entered a golden reign. Uh, this man has, um, has made incredible mistakes. He's tried to cover these mistakes. He's had people killed because of these mistakes. But he's a continual man after God's own heart. He always has a repentful spirit. He always knows who to go back to. David has sons. One son kills another son. Another son raped a, raped a, a, a daughter. I mean, the dysfunctionality in here is beyond belief. Here, in this, in this case, there's a man named Absalom. Absalom is one of David's sons. Absalom has taken reign over the kingship of Israel. He has gone in and taken the, not only the kingship of Israel, overthrown his own dad, but now David is off in a valley in exile. Absalom is now trying to kill his father. So in case you woke up today in a very dysfunctional environment, have hope, right? <laughs> David is in exile. His son has taken over his palace, has, by the way, took all his concubines in an, on a street top, slept with on a roof, slept with him to show everybody who's in control. And, and Absalom is trying to kill his own dad. Get rid of he and whatever remnant army he has. So everybody's with me. David, Absalom. Now you have two more characters moving into the picture today. These two characters are going to play a heavy role. Um, Ahithophel, I know it's an interesting name to say, Ahithophel is a very good servant of Israel. This is a very, um, uh, this is a very wise counsel. Imagine this would be the joint chiefs of, the commander of the joint chiefs of staff. This was, uh, let me, how about this? He's the secretary of state. Ahithophel is somebody that everyone would look to and say, man, where do we, uh, what do we do? He would give counsel. He was given such respect to give counsel that really a lot of the leaders stopped going to priests because this guy was, was a good guy, godly guy, uh, you know, it appeared. He was, a, he was a good leader. Bring in Ahithophel. Ahithophel stayed in Jerusalem when David was kicked out. And you're probably thinking, why would Ahithophel stick around if he's really a good guy, right? If, you, if you're the secretary of state, if you're the chief counsel of King David, why would you stay in this place? When, I mean, you should follow the king. Well, the problem is Ahithophel had a granddaughter named Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba is the one that David slept with and had her husband killed. No matter how professional, no matter what a reputation you have, when it comes to family, you're going to defend family. And in this case, Ahithophel's like, you know what, I'm going to stay with Absalom. So Ahithophel stays in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, here's cast character number four, last one. This individual is one that is going to be, um, uh, he's going to play a pivotal role. God's going to use him. He is a man who would be considered the undersecretary of state. This was a very well-respected man. His name's Hushai. And Hushai goes with David, right? He's in exile with David. But Jerusalem doesn't know. No one knows. No one knows Hushai is gone. They're like, well, um, and David knows this. David pulls Hushai in and he says this. He says, um, I want, nobody knows you're here. I need you back in Jerusalem. You've got to get back there. You've got to get there. You've got to confuse their plans. They're going to listen to you. And he's basically saying this. I'm not afraid of my own son. My son, he's not the greatest warrior on earth, but Ahithophel is going to tell him exactly what to do. You've got to get in there and confuse the situation. So Hushai goes back to Jerusalem. It is now the mole, he's the plant, he's the spy for King David. Is everyone with me so far? Okay, critical. What's that, this thing? Push it in, there we go. Is that better? Thank you. All the hand signals that we give here. You ought to see the one for when my zipper's down. You know? <laughs> But uh, is, is that all right? Okay, good. All right. You'll never know other than an impromptu prayer. It'll just happen. So, we're, here we are. I was about to pray, and that's really awkward. We'll make this an eye-open prayer. Lord, give me the, give me the words. All right. So turn in your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 16, 2 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to walk walking through all the way to uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 18. So um, I'm going to paraphrase maybe a couple of, a few, uh, one or two sections. Um, all right, now verse 16, uh, you covered this last week, Shale here. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. Wow. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and Absalom. David and Absalom both revered the counsel of this man, chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I'll stop right here. This is great strategy. This is effective strategy. He's not messing around. He knows David's army is small, and the army of Israel is gigantic. Remember, this overthrow came out of nowhere. It was like overnight the city was on fire. And so the, it wasn't like the army had a chance to say, hey, let's choose our allegiance. David took off with his remnant palace guard, his loyal guard, and any mighty men of valor that basically took off with him. So David is at a sizable disadvantage numerically. Absalom has the army of Israel, which is we're talking in the hundreds of thousands. We are talking a gigantic army. David is in, a, is in a stronghold knowing he's at a disadvantage. Ahithophel knows us. So Ahithophel, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. 
I will bring back all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So, hey, this is, um, yeah, it makes total sense. We get our army, we march. Ahithophel is thinking, you just listen to my words of counsel. He is indefensible, we'll take him. Now, what's interesting in scripture, there's not one case, this is really kind of neat. There's not one case where there's ever been a concern about numerical disadvantage as an army. Not one. There's never been a recorded battle of God's people to say, oh, we won because of overwhelming odds. Never. Uh, it, it's really interesting. So in this case, David knows this, but God, God is going to move in amazing ways. And what he's about to do is bring in Hushai into the mind of Absalom. So here it is. First, then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite over also, so let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has uh, Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do if he says, as he says? If not, speak. So Hushai comes in. Absalom has said, um, Well, there's a great plan been presented before me. Ahithophel has presented a great plan. What do you think? Now, what's interesting is, if you're probably wondering, remember, whenever we read Scripture, why, is, why would he call in someone? Let's ask ourselves, why would you call in a second council? The council was esteemed, well-revered. It makes total sense. It's compassionate. You're not killing um, anybody else but David. Why would you bring in somebody? Because that is what the power of the Holy Spirit does. Oftentimes, as we as believers talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, and we talk about, oh, he dwells within us, he moves within us. Folks, he's not contained to us, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit can pull and direct non-believers in all kinds of ways. In this case, directs Absalom to call in second counsel. So Hushai walks in there, and then Hushai says to Absalom, watch his plan. By the way, this plan, he's appealing to one word, one sinful condition, of Absalom. See if you catch it. Here it is. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. As soon as some of the people fall into the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, man, whose heart is like that of a heart of a lion, will utterly melt in fear. For all of Israel knows that your father is a mighty man. And those who are with him are valiant men. Here it is. And when he says, but my counsel, right here it is. This is the mole inside. This is David's spy. This is working. Espionage at his best. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he's to be found and we shall light upon him as dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, 
Then all of Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is found there. Wow, this escalated. I mean, you know, we're going we're gonna to destroy any town he seeks refuge in. We're going to wreak havoc on this entire place. Absalom is liking this. Absalom, you lead the charge yourself. Remember, this is a guy full of pride. Long, flowing, blonde hair. The man weighed his hair. What kind of, who does that, right? The man, this man is full of pride. You ride the mountain front. Everybody's going to follow you. I mean, pride. He's looking at this. He's thinking, yeah, people will follow me. I'll be the one leading the battle. Hushai knew exactly what to do. And what, is, what does Absalom do? Look at the next verse. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai and the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That's a big verse here, verse 14. I always love it, by the way. Never, ever, ever think when you walk out of here, you can't give me pointers or tips, especially in a first service, because it helps me. Nimrally, generally after the second service, I'm like, well, thanks a lot. I won't be preaching this for years to come probably, but this one, somebody walked out. Nelda Smith walked out and said, Hey, don't forget, we kind of glossed over that verse, but do you see this? For the Lord anointed to defeat, um, the Lord is the one who confused Absalom and made a good plan look ridiculous. Absolutely made it look ridiculous. That is what the Lord does. And every time you read through scripture and you think, oh, who won this battle? Who won this battle? Who won this battle? We give names. But at the end of the day, it's the mighty warrior. It's God. I remember I used to teach a third grade Sunday school class. I'm like, you know, and I, I, would, I would like, okay, if I ask any spiritual question, it's always going to be Jesus is the answer, you know. And I would say, well, who would have been a light bulb? Jesus. I'm like, okay. Edison, Thomas Edison that Jesus used, and, you know, you'd have to break it down. And, and uh, in this case, the reality is, who won this battle? Who's winning is the minds? God. God is directing the entire thought press of what's, uh, process of what's happening. That's all the way up to the, you know, the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son who goes out and, and spins his father's inheritance and lies with pigs and does this. My favorite verse in that is, and then he came to his senses. Jesus can just, has the ability to bring someone to their senses and, and sometimes confound them. And so here it is. Um, Hushai comes in with a plan. Ahithophel is his counsel, doesn't work, and so Ahithophel simply removes himself. And there's a sad ending, and you'll see it in just a minute, what happens to Ahithophel. So this whole strategy is working. Look at the next, uh, next verse. Then David arose. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Six, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I tell you what, for time's sake, well, okay, bear with it. It's one minute. Watch this. Watch this. Uh, um, I'm going to just read some verses. This is a plan of action. It's just hang in there for a little bit. Um, basically what you're going to see happen is they're going to have an exact plan as to how to get this message across. Like, how do you, how do you notify David? Well, there's a plan. Here it is. Um, uh, then Hushai said to, you don't have to remember these names, just bear with it. said to Zadok and Abathar the priest, Thus, and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus I have also counseled. Here it is. Now, therefore, sin quickly and tell David. 
do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over. Let the king and all the people, by the way, passing over the Jordan was what he means there. Lest the king and all, all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Hamez were waiting at, 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 in Rogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. So basically, he's using two men, the son's priest, to go tell someone. They're going to tell a woman who she's going to tell someone else. It is a pattern because they're going to be followed. People, kings are paranoid. They had cupbearers because people would poison them. I mean, they're watching. And so sure enough, one of, the, one of the, the castle watches sees something. Verse 18, but a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Byroom and who had a well in his courtyard. They went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain upon it. Nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the house, the woman's house, they said, where are these guys? And the woman said to them, they've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and couldn't find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well, and they went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise, go quickly over the water. And thus so has Ahithophel counseled against you. So what happens here is Hushai sees Absalom is going to make a move. On his recommendation, he calls over these men. You're to go immediately over to this place. There will be another agent basically waiting on you. Well, the problem was when they got there to meet the other guys at this woman's house, they were followed. Absalom's men see what's going on. They tell Absalom something's going on. There's people running. It looks like they're carrying messages. And so he says, go after him. He gets there and the woman takes uh, this like kind of burlap or fabric, throws it over the well. And what, does she, what does it mean when you throw pebbles on it? Well, you're making the well look like it's dry. Like it's not primed, it can't work. And so the men ride up, Absalom's men ride up and they're searching, more than likely tearing everything over and they look and they see this well where these two guys are hiding is covered up with dirt and fabric. And oh, the well's dried up, there's nothing here. And they go back, having no idea that right under their noses were secret agents of King David. These men climb out. By the way, I've always considered that the first righteous lie of like, you know, are we allowed to lie? Well, that's a great haircut, that kind of lie, you know. That, this is kind of one of those things. And so they're off. Um, and they basically say, by the way, Ahithophel, he was, yeah, he counseled against you. Verse 22. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left behind who did not cross the Jordan. So they're moving. Um, there's a lot that's going on in David's life, and I don't want to gloss over this. Uh, David would write in Psalms about his heart just breaking. And, you know, when you look at Psalms, I'm just going to do one, uh, Psalm 55. Look at the words he is penning, writing, while he's in exile. That's not mentioned directly in here. Psalm 55, um, verse 4 through 8. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. And horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in a wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. 
So meanwhile, this is what's going on in the absolute mind and heart of David. His, I mean, if, think about this. His son, his beloved son, is wanting to kill him. He's doing everything he can to, to go. And it wasn't enough that he took his kingdom. David posed no substantial threat. He wants him dead. But see, there's pride. Pride is what moves in the heart of people. Us, you and I, we gather together as a church, but we have pride. Every one of us. So when I went to the food ministry yesterday, I went in there very intentionally, not just to be an an under-shepherd as a, you know, as a pastor at a church and show support. Sure, I can't wait to be around you guys. But I went in there to die a little bit to my pride because all of us have our weaknesses. I used to, at the church I used to belong, we, we would have a, what they call a pastor of the week program where you would, um, you would come in on a certain day that you're normally off and you would oversee um, benevolence needs. And that, was, that day was either the greatest blessing or the greatest discouragement for me. There would be families who would come in hurting and needing and just, and you could see what you're able to do. Like, oh, I mean, you're just helping them out in every way. And then they're the ones that you get that really test your resolve. And so what would happen is, A, uh, I would get the call. So-and-so is here for food. Now I would go downstairs and say, well, follow me. And meanwhile, you know, they're talking on the phone the whole time, not even engaging with you. And it's like, yeah, uh, I, I need some of this. I need some of that. I need some of this. I and I'm like, no, no cordial greeting. No, like, hi, I'm here. To, you know, thanks for the food bank operating. You know, I mean, this is like, they're making the rounds, the churches. And you can tell. And I open up the, the door. How many, how many children do you have? And okay, let's pull down some boxes. And I put the boxes down. And um, yeah, no, no, I don't drink that. It's, no, I don't like that diet stuff. Get that out of there. And like, no, I don't, do, uh, no, what do you have? Do you have any, and, and I mean, I am dying inside, you know? And I'm like, huh. like, it's, we bought this. It wasn't like, you know, we got it for free. We buy it by bulk and we bring it in here and we have it just in case. And she's all picky. And keep in mind, she and her sister are not getting off the phone. I'm like, oh, you know, so I'm, you know, carrying these boxes with the bread sticking all over. And I'm just watching. I mean, I'm thinking, uh, they're going to hold the door, right? They're going to hold the door. You know, so they held the door. I get outside. And I sat down. There's two boxes of canned goods, two boxes of dry goods, and whatever bread I could stick on top. The car is running. It's a beautiful spring day. The windows are down. The kids are in it. And it's running. The guy, you know, I mean, we were in there for 10 or 15 minutes. Like, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, the kids are drinking, you know, these little two ninety nine things you buy at Wawa, the Pepsi, that I would never spend. You just wouldn't spend the money, but, but just chugging it. And, I'm, and, the, and finally, and uh, the secretary came out, who was, you know, Kathy Horton at the time, who was working at the desk, and she comes out, and I, I'm, I had it. It's just one of those moments, I'm like, do you think maybe you might get off the phone the whole time you're talking to me and you shut off your engine so you don't waste the gas. You don't buy the kids this junk to drink. Plus it's $2. I don't even spend money on it. What? And so anyway, I'm just, and I'm loading this stuff up and I said, you need to have a great flatitude. And, and, I, and she looks at me and she says, and you will not be handling the food bank anymore. You know, my cat, <laughs> the secretary. And I'm like, God, oh, just don't get it. You know, like, you know, I mean, you deal with people that are hurting all day long and just this ingrateful attitude, ungrateful attitude. Well, there I am sitting at this thing next door. And I mean, I can't, who, who doesn't want to be a part of a 
you know, a joyful experience of people walking and saying, I need something. But my pride, dealing with someone who has their pride at a place I feel like they shouldn't, you know, they show humility maybe and be kind, use sense. I get in here and here's how he trains his workers. He says, all right, you're going to go into the dry goods section then there's going to be a bunch of dry goods. You're going to give them two. If they reach, you tell them you get two. If they reach for third, you're to pull down a fourth and give it to them. And I'm like, oh. He says, because then you're going to see something happen the next time they come in. They're going to only take one. And sometimes they'll come back and return something and say they didn't need it. Ah, don't you love it when you just get spiritually wrung out, you know? Because <laughs> think about it. Anybody that we would ever put up here, and hey, here's a microphone, and look what God did, and God restored me, and, you know, God had me in a place where he, he brought me to understanding that I could be with believers and I could, God could really, I could really feel a sense of God's love. We would applaud. person would be in a, <laughs> a great position of just hanging out with us in fellowship. But how many of us really would have had the patience to deal with this person when they were bitter because of what life had dealt them? They were angry. They were tired of thinking through logic and reason and they were just existing. See, the reality is all of us love to be around miraculous outcomes, but just most of us don't want to be there when they're happening. And in this case, I learned that my pride is just as bad as anyone's. All of us have our pride. It's usually justified in something, isn't it? The, uh, something I've always noticed, too, is I say this to every couple I've ever been um, around in a wedding. Godliness has nothing to do with perfectionism. Godliness has nothing to do with being right. Scripture in Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to Corinthians is very clear. It says, love has nothing to do with perfect. It has everything to do be with being patient and kind. And it doesn't celebrate an unrighteousness, which means this. It doesn't get its joy and its happiness off things that are going bad. Because that's what happens when people wrong you. You want to wrong them back in ways that they don't know you're wronging them back. And you want to wrong them back in becoming cold and callous and, and divide, building up walls. And it happens when I'm standing outside of a church parking lot and in the most sinful, disgusting, prideful way, judging these people. By the way, I had every right, and I think I was 100% right, but godliness has nothing to do with being 100% right. <laughs> nothing. Patient, kind, oh, let me preach that, not let me live that. Let's share about it and talk about it, but don't let me live it. And in this case, I recognize that I'm no different than Absalom. All of us have our pride. And so what's about to unfold here is um, sad, and I just, want, I just want to talk about it a little bit. And I know this hits home for more than a handful of us in this room. But verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died, and he was buried in the tomb of his father. Um, nowhere negatively was this spoken of. Um, as a matter of fact, when it says he was buried in the tomb of his father, it would have been a place of esteem. So oftentimes, those of us who have been survivors of of suicide have 
we've always had people wonder, and you've always, we've always kind of had to correct them. There is no unforgivable sin, not in that area. And, uh, and so it's, uh, the only time unforgivable sin is mentioned is in the, um, in the Gospels when Jesus was looking at a priest who had defiled the Holy Spirit. And he said, you, sir, there's nothing you can do for the fact that I'm sending you straight to hell. And you, I mean, like, he condemned him right there for grieving them and, and, and insulting that, the Holy Spirit. For someone to say that you would lose your salvation at suicide is someone who would say you have to gain salvation by an act of work. And we don't believe in work salvation. So that's the theology side of it. My part to you, to share with you, as I know many in here have been afflicted, including myself. My best friend at 23 years old took his life. And I heard the entire experience right on the phone as he was saying goodbye, thinking he was hanging up the phone correctly. And I walked through as, a, as basically an unbeliever into being a believer because of that, and I still had a lot of questions. But here it is. So I want to encourage you with this. If you're ever working with family or friends who are contemplating Understand, they are, can be in a place of darkness and depression that we can never even imagine. And we never judge anybody by what they did in that place because they didn't know what they were doing. But I would encourage you to share with them this, that in the midst of everything, especially if they're a believer, here it is, in the midst of everything you're going through, you're justified in your feelings but don't give up on God's will for you. Deep down at that moment, there's, there's an abeyance. They, they forget what it means that God is still in control. How many of us have made decisions, poor decisions in our life, and we forgot what it was like? The fact that God was in control. We were in anger, we were in tears, we did things, and we forgot at that moment. And some consequences are greater than others. And so reading through scripture, folks, there's a lot of you here who've walked through that. And thank you for allowing me to walk verse by verse. You know, and when we hit things like this, we, we talk about them. And so um, we move on and we see all of a sudden that there's uh, David. I'm going to paraphrase the next several verses at close 17 here. David appoints people. He starts moving people around. He starts, he, starts, uh, he starts putting people into certain areas to, to get ready to fight. He starts bringing in provisions. David in chapter 18, if you were to give a title to this, it's David cannot stop being king. Look at chapter 18 of verse 1. Okay, here we are. David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Why is this important? Remember that if you were a conscripted male in the army of Israel at that time, it was very organized. You would know exactly where to go when the bells started tolling. The bells started tolling. They started calling men. You would go to a certain farmhouse, a certain grain house, and you would grab either um, a spear, your bow, whatever you were assigned to fight with, and you would meet at a certain gathering place and that you were in a company of men who would become a battalion of men and he would move as an army. That is what Israel has. David, when he left in the middle of the night with Israel on fire, had no standing army. So immediately David kicks into being a king and starts assigning men who are commanders over thousands and commanders over hundreds. Basically what he's doing, he's creating platoons and brigades. And this is what, he, this is what David does best. Remember when he fell into a sin with Bathsheba? The very opening line of that chapter 
it's springtime when kings go to war. What was David doing? Not going to war. And so um, we are all based on bent on purpose. And when you remove that purpose, you remove a lot. You do. Um, they, some of you who watch, uh, who know about the Civil War history, it is amazing if you ever do a study on Civil War generals, you will not believe how many of them, one of them was in almost uh, a lunatic asylum. Like I'm talking days away. Another was an alcoholic who'd been kicked out by his family. They had, many of them had failed in school. And then war breaks out and they bloomed. That was their, this, this was everything to them. And, and so they, they were consumed by it and they were very effective generals. What happened as soon as the war ended? Well, they went about that being an alcoholic. One of them went back to a, a, a lunatic asylum. One of them became president. And then what happened after president? He became a drunk. That's just what, this is what calls so many people as a place of purpose. But then you see all the time, I was talking to a guy on vacation a couple of weeks ago. He's retired Navy. And we're talking, he's like, yeah, I retired at 22 years. He says, well, my buddies are retired at 30 in 30 something years. He says, it's, he said, they have the hardest time because all they know, all they know is, is this structure and this purpose. And you walk, you walk out that door where you're an, a general or an admiral. And he says, you walk out that door and you're just a neighbor the very next day. You lose your rank. Nobody's saluting you. Nobody's snapping to attention. Nobody's standing in a room when you walk in. And all the things you ever wanted are now you look around and feel like, I don't have anything. If you strip the uniform or the insignia or the title or the education or the home or the car of us, you will find our identity. And that identity has to be purposed in Christ or otherwise we will fall. David never lost his identity, even in the midst of all the mess. He always knew his identity with God. And so he's a, a very powerful king as well. Verse two, and David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, another third under the command of Abishai, Joab's brother, and another third under the command of Ittai. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, you shall, you shall not go out. If we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they're not going to care about us. But you're worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems fit best to you, I'll do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds of thousands. By the hundreds and the thousands. And so David is looking at his men and he said, I'm going to ride with you. And they're like, you're not going anywhere. You're going to go exactly, you're going to go back. And you're going to stay at the city. You'll send us help from there. And David listens to his men. Anybody that doesn't listen to counsel is going to fall. So most of us in here, and I'm not trying to stereotype everybody, but most of us in here, definitely at the first service, come from a long religious background. We, we do. And we have seen the effects of what happens when you have religion without you lose your purpose in it. And you, you, all of a sudden you have pride. and think. So when we got together and formed Creekside, we established some safeguards to make sure. And people said they wouldn't work. Well, they've worked. In a church, it doesn't even have a, you know, much of a functioning website. I don't even think we have a listed phone number. People still find us. You know, I mean, we, God is still moving in our midst. We're not going to have a senior pastor. What do you mean you're not going to have a senior pastor? 
you know, well, we have a team. That's what we do. We're not gonna, um, we work together as we administer as a team. We have elders and deacons meetings where we, we don't even keep sharp instruments on the table because we might throw them at each other. But we love each other. And we don't do it because we stand on pride. We are concerned about keeping together an institution called a church. And there is where pride lays itself down. We have another meeting where different groups are represented on Tuesday, and there's about 10 or 12 of us that meet for hours. And guess what that group is? Nothing but accountability for me. Jake, that's a lousy idea. Jake, no. I think we ought to do that. Inevitably, anything that good comes out in our, is, is a result of multiple counseled meetings. Now you look around, you see churches that are gasping for air with 12 members left, where they used to be hundreds and hundreds, pride. No, we're not going to change. Okay, well, I know, you know the cracker white church that you have here has been now, the whole neighborhood is, uh, demographic has changed. Maybe we ought to shift gears. No, this is who we are. Well, okay, yeah, but to, no, this is, and you, anytime you see no, is, is a, it almost a sense of pride when it's a reaction. And so now there are churches that we know of begging to come in and meet in our facility. They can't find room. And, but there are other churches around here with 12 and 14 people. And most of them, or we're talking a decade from going home, right? And what keeps them together? Pride. We built this building. We built this place. This was our building. This was our, you know what we did in 1955 to be able to put this here? This is, and you keep thinking, in 10 years, it'll be in probate. It'll be sold at an auction. It'll be a pawn shop. For right now, you got a shot. You got a chance. I meet with pastors a lot that tell them, keep, walk around this building, pray about this. You know, there's some building they're looking at and try, why? Because God can change the hearts of people. I've seen it done. One of my friends who was a college uh, student went off to be a pastor at a church and they're at a church in North Carolina and they were meeting at a church every Sunday night. The church would let them meet Sunday night. They would have Sunday morning church, the, the, the people owned the building. And the people had the building, the church was going they just kept dropping in membership. They were aging out. And they asked my friend to bring his church in on a Sunday morning. They said, would you come in on a Sunday morning? We just want to worship together. And they did. He said, well, this is neat. He told his church, hey, let's go in and meet with this group. And let's meet with them. And they came in together. They had worship service. At the end of the service, the pastor of the Sunday morning church and his deacons line up. And they bring up the pastors. They don't know what's about to happen. They say, we have prayed about it. And God has moved in our heart, bless you. And we have a, we are 100% agreement that we are, would like to hand you the, 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 mortgage, the title to our building. I mean, you can, you can imagine. He said, Jake, we're just crying up a storm. He said, they handed us this massive, this church campus. He said, but we know it's expensive. And... Um, uh, most of us have found some other churches. He said, this one maybe is a little, you know, uh, you know, some will stay here, some might go another, but we had $280,000 in a bank account. We'd like to give you that too. That movement of those people who would have been told a week before, you're in a dying church, help birth a church. Are you ready? That for the last several years has maintained one of the top 20 fastest growing churches in America. They 
we're meeting at that point with 250, 300 people. They just left a park. They're running 4,000 people now at different churches all over the place. They just started a church here in Tampa that we had them come and share. That's what happens when pride steps out of the way and says, you know what? I have purpose to a point. God, enlighten me and show me more. But what can stop the, the God's work? Us, you and I. I deserve it. Pride comes from, it can come from good things. I worked hard for this. I slaved over this. I've always heard this title, this, this quote, because I love trees. I just I have this fascination with trees. And as somebody said, I think John Muir said this. He said, great is a man or a woman who plants a tree under whose shade they'll never enjoy. That's a good person. Think about what we are trying to build as a church at Creekside. Now I'm talking about the building. I'm talking about us continually working together, which is why I always encourage you to know intergenerational connection is everything here. We don't segregate ages. There's no senior adult ministry here. No, you senior adults have been purposed not to just go on bus trips, but to come alongside our folks and say, this is what I can offer you. And then the humility that I know you carry is power. Power. You're not there when, when the younger people are continually telling you, man, you won't believe this person is, somebody was describing someone the other day. That's the coolest person in church. This is a 22-year-old telling me this. I'm like, who is it? And they told me, I'm like, that person's 84 years old. That's the coolest person in church. Either that says we are, we're in bad shape or that's a really cool person. Guess what? It's the latter. This is the connection of what happens when you see intergenerational, when you see crossover, when you see people say purpose beyond privilege. And that means we go beyond to say this. We have to work with places that are food ministries. Because guess what? It's 1,800 families. They're going to get fed. God pays for what he orders. But it's probably you and I that need feeding more than anybody. You and I that need to break down the walls of pride to walk in and see this is what it looks like. Again, we like to see the miracles. We necessarily don't want to be there when they start. Was it Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens, you know. I think we want to be in a place where we continually watch the power of God. I have no idea where I went. That was a long rant. I'm sorry. You can give me a hand sign for that one too. (laughs) Um, Here we are, verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, watch the loving heart of a father, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard the king as he gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. What a loving dad. A son who's kicked you out of your home, taken all of your possessions and people, and is now trying to kill you. And he is sending his men out. They're out of the gate. They've walked out of these these gates. There's thousands of men. He calls the three commanders over and he says, deal Gently with my son Absalom. Verse 6. So the army went out to the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. 
The battle spread over the face of the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Um, I had to go into quite a few uh, books to... I guess I wanted to get this correctly here. I've seen this verse. What does it mean, the forest devoured more men than the sword? The sword was conventional warfare, which meant it was open field. Men fought with swords. The forest was, if you've been to Israel, I've never been to Israel one day, but the, the trees are a lot of times grow in what they call hammock fashion, very dense, very thick, not real tall, which creates a lot of thorns and vines. And so these men were fighting, the army of Israel did not fight very well in forests, and so they were engaged in a forest, and there they were probably attacked by archers. And if you ever played hide-and-seek, the defender, or whatever the person hiding, always has the advantage. In this case, the army moved into the woods and were demolished. So um, they didn't fight well in the woods, and it showed here. Um, basically, to summarize verse 24 on to the end of 17, um, I'm sorry, I've already done it. Uh, sorry, the next verse here um, let me just go ahead and read it. Uh, and Absalom happened to meet some of the servants of David. That, that, by the way, don't think that was just happened, by the way. Um, Absalom was riding on his mule. The mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. He was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule was under him, went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Now, stop right here. This man runs up and sees Absalom hanging, ironically, from what? His hair. His hair is tangled up in the vines, the bushes. The, the donkey kept going, and he's stuck. This man is, by the way, through the conversation that goes on, is no dummy. He's about, he goes up to Joab to tell him what's going on. Watch the response of Joab. Um, Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him? Strike him there right to the ground. I'd have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, and he quotes him here, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. You know, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then what would you have done? You just stood there aloof. Uh, he tells Joab right there, are you kidding me? You know this David, he kills every messenger that ever gives him bad news. Anybody that's ever, oh yeah, I, I took off the head of your enemy. And what does David do? He kills him. This guy's like, I am not a fool. There's no way I'm gonna touch this guy. no. And so what does Joab do when they're arguing with someone who's right? Well, that's what he, he says. Uh, Joab said, oh, I'm not going to waste any time with you. <laughs> and he walked away. Joab knows the guy's right. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them to the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And if that weren't enough, in 10 young men, Joab's army bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him in a great pit in the forest and raised him over a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled to every one of his, uh, to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar. This is interesting that we're closing here. That is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, 
and is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom had no children, and he said, this is going to be my monument. He built a monument and named it after himself. And then, of course, he's laid there. All of us build monuments to ourselves, and we don't even know it. And again, behind that monument can be a sense of pride. And when I think of this, I think there's so many avenues that we could land this plane, and I would, I would encourage you to look at what pride can do in our life, right? How we need to die off to that and, and to recognize that pride is a killer, a slow killer to a lot of us. It changes who we are. I remember working at the bank and I would fly home all the time on weekends. People were like, why do you come home from, from Tampa? Well, I had a small class I was teaching at church. But the reality is I started to act like a jerk. I was, a ra- I was mimicking my environment. I was like, I was quick with people. My brother called me out one day on it. He's like, why are you being so obnoxious? He didn't say it like that. <laughs> he said, he said, why you, you know? And I said, well, I don't know. Am I really? Because I was around people that did that all the time. Pride is not born. You're not born at birth with pride to say, I'm going to be pride, proud. It happens over time. And it happens in, in places you can't even imagine. Those of you who are nurses and doctors, I don't know how you deal with it. I didn't tell me people had a weird kidney stone surgery a couple of weeks ago and stayed overnight in a hospital. And, you know, the, the nurses were just like, you're so kind, you're so kind. And I didn't think, well, I was really kind when I came out of anesthesia, by the way. <laughs> I was, like, you know, you come out and you're like, oh, you're so awesome, you're great, you're great, you're great. And they were like, yeah, everybody's great to you. I'm like, yeah. I said, well, you've been hitting on her for the last two minutes. I must have told this nurse she was beautiful ten times. You're beautiful. <laughs> and I pray she didn't come back in my room. Yeah. And uh, I, I, was, I was hearing people coming like, in their rooms I just, it was a demand. I'm like, are you people crazy? These are your caregivers in here. And I just, I could, I could hear people just, where's, where's this? And I asked for water. And I, want, and I asked one of the nurses, I said, do you deal with this all the time? I said, all the time. And I'm like, where, the people in their lowest physical condition have that kind of, <laughs> I don't get it. But think about, us what if we as a church don't check ourselves as believers pride it could be our downfall what if we walked into our building that we're building thinking oh yeah wow we got more than 10 foot ceilings now what if pride seeps in what if we walk in there and, oh man i can't wait for people to see look be careful because God will use that building for our demise the way he'd use Absalom's hair for his. That's what happens. But this is what I want to leave you with. David has been restored to Israel. And by the way, next week we're going to learn he's in mourning. Can you pull up Psalm 3 for me? If you could. And uh, Psalm 3 is uh, some words that, um, that he penned while he was fleeing from Absalom. But watch his words. If Again, we talked about what it means to live a sermon. When you walk in grief, pain, and hurt. These are words out of a man's mouth, pinned to paper when he was stripped of his title, of what was his, and his own son, and his own son trying to kill him. Here we are. Lord, how many 
are my foes. How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. He says this, that God, if there's one person I fear, it's you. And there'd be no other that I'll fear, which is what I've discovered. When I say when you fear God, it's an overwhelming respect, not a spookish fear, but an overwhelming respect. When you fear God, you don't fear other things as much. Have you noticed that? And when someone doesn't fear God, what do they do? They fear everything else in life. You and I have been given a choice and an opportunity to recognize that God is a deliverer of our soul. God is the one who will handle our reputation. God is the one who will handle our bank account. God is the one who will handle the other person that we want to cast judgment on. And in all that, we lay down pride. And when we do that, we lift up purpose in him. May we be that kind of person. Pray with me, please. Jesus, thank you for your word to us. Um, Thanks for the message that we've learned from um, Absalom's mistakes, David's fear. Lord, we look at Scripture and we keep thinking, even though these, these pages are thousands of years old, that, Lord, they're, um, they're still relevant, so relevant for today. And, um, Lord, I just pray that there be anyone in here who, who walks into this fellowship, who doesn't know you and doesn't know what it means to just have that overwhelming love from you, the Lord, they would ask probably the best minister to, that could have brought them, and that would be their friend, be the one that invited them to the church. And Lord, if there's someone who um, maybe didn't, maybe they came alone, they want to just ask questions like, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be, um, what does it mean to be restored? Father, they could find one of us and ask. But Lord, we thank you that our faith doesn't end with a pastor, doesn't end with a sermon. The Lord, you are the one who gives us strength and peace. You're the one who breaks down the pride in our own life and we find out we've never been so safe as to be in your presence and in your arms. Lord, we love you. And we collectively say today that, Lord, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.